Hi, I'm Margie and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off the Desert Island. This is your friendly little reminder and request to ask you to leave a little five-star rating and maybe even a review if you fancy it, as it really makes me so happy reading them. And more importantly, it helps others to find the podcast, which is obviously great. So thank you so much. I hope you're all well and that you're having a lovely week. If you follow me on Instagram, which you really should, you'll find me at Margie Nomura. You'll definitely have heard me banging on about the Flavor Thesaurus. It's such an amazing book and my copy is well thumbed. So I was giddy with excitement to meet Nikki and talk all things flavor. Get ready to hear me being a proper fangirl. (laughs) Here we go. My guest today is Nikki Segnet. Nikki is the author of two books. The first being The Flavor Thesaurus, which has sold more than 250,000 copies and has been translated into 14 languages, which is just amazing. Her latest book is Lateral Cooking, which I'm sure is going to follow in the footsteps of her first, and it's already received rave reviews. Nikki counts Heston Blumenthal, Nigel Slater, and Ottolenghi as fans, and according to an article I found online, Kate Winslet too. The Sunday Times said of Nikki's first book, The Flavor Thesaurus is a deceptively simple little masterpiece set to take its place by McGee on food and cooking as a household Bible. Welcome, Nikki. Hello. Thank you very much. (laughs) So, Nikki, in the interest of full disclosure, I do have to tell you that The Flavor Thesaurus is my all-time favorite cookbook, and I should probably play it way cooler than that and not tell you that straight off the bat. But honestly, to me, it's just perfection in cookery book form. Uh, you can tell me that as many times as you like. <laughs> in the introduction just now, I know I said that it sold over 250,000 copies, but I genuinely think a lot of that might be me because I buy it for everyone. Everyone says that to me. <laughs> Do they? <laughs> it's such a good yeah. present, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. We're going to talk in more detail about both of the books and how they came to be. But in the first instance, I was intrigued to know, did you ever expect this when you wrote it? Well, I no. I mean, I didn't expect it to sell a quarter of a million copies, and I definitely didn't expect it. And I was told not to expect it to be translated into any languages. Nobody thought that, well, partly because of the format of it, there is an alphabetical side to it, and that really puts people off oh, um, yeah. translating things. And also because, I, you know, to me, it has a very British sensibility. It's, um, you know, it is quite odd in its way and it's um it's not entirely serious and you think well maybe that won't you know how would that work in korean yeah there's <laughs> your your sort of sense of humor of which there is plenty mm. your writing is so witty but it is very it is very british isn't well it? i would have thought so but yeah. <laughs> some, somehow uh, you know every now and again it gets translated a different language and people people ask me things you know they, obviously they ask you i know what is this unusual chocolate bar or stuff like that but yeah I mean it just it seems to do okay in other countries as far as was it worth doing or did I think it was worth doing I I obviously did I think I thought that if I really wanted a book like this then there were lots of people who like cooking who might also want a book that was about how flavors work together so I think I I mean when I was writing it I lived on my savings 
Okay. Um, because it was, you know, most books don't get particularly good advance. And uh, so I kind of just, I had to support myself while I was doing it. So I think just the fact that I did that for three years shows that I did think it would be disingenuous to say, oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't think it would sell at all because I wouldn't have been able to afford to do that. That's so interesting. You sort of you you were taking a punt on it in some ways, weren't you? Yeah, and there was a belief. I mean, I I, I don't think I, I and I think I thought I would finish it and I would go back to doing what I, I did for a living. Yes, probably. I still feel like that a bit uh, <laughs> anyway. But yeah, so uh, yeah, I thought it would do okay. I thought it would be worth doing because I mean, I I don't know anything about sales figures, but a, a quarter of a million that sounds like an awful lot to me, and it, that can't be the norm for cookbooks, can it? No, it isn't. It's a lot. And of course, it's also, it's in hardback as well. So I think that kind of makes a difference. Actually, I don't know. If it's, no, I don't know. But yes, <laughs> but uh, it is a lot. It's it's definitely a, a lot to sell. It's a lot to sell when you don't have a column yeah. or a restaurant or a TV show. It's kind of, it's, you know, I came from absolutely nowhere because I did come from nowhere. I came from an office job. Yeah, a completely different direction. You sort of came at it cold. And, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's just not to keep no, too. You know, but too. it's amazing. <laughs> Let's um, take a pause from praising you and talk about the first desert island dish. And that's a dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Okay, so uh, it's just great fun thinking about this. It, it really brought back a lot of things that I, uh, dishes and things and food that I'd forgotten actually, which is great because I could use them in my next book. And there was there was a toss up. Do I? kindly talk about my my mother is a fantastic cook uh she used to cook from scratch every day and make really wonderful things do i talk about one of the dishes that she made me or do i tell the truth about my childhood food tell us and, the truth well the truth, the truth is, is the food that reminds me of my childhood is sweet because i was a real i was so committed to sugar i mean i used to not take the bus to school. I used to pocket the money and then <laughs> spend it in the sweet shop. And so I would happily walk a mile and a half to school in order to to have ten pence to spend on That's dedication. On, to yeah, the cause. no, I was really dedicated <laughs> to the cause. And if I didn't, if I did take the bus and I didn't have the money, then I would I would steal the sweets instead. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I was really dedicated to the cause of sweets. And I I could probably sit here and reel off a, a thousand different names of all the sweets that I used to eat. Yeah, what were the best ones? Oh god, just, no, there's no such thing as best. I just okay. like I loved all of them. I loved all of the sweets apart from one thing, which was Edinburgh Rock. Oh, have you ever had that? No. Oh. Is it different to normal rock? Yeah. It's kind of, it's sort of like normal rock, but it's very, it, is, it looks chalky and it kind of, it tastes like chalk with holes in it. Oh. <laughs> and even though it's made of sugar, I don't like it. And that was, it was the only sweet, but it's not really a dish, is it? I mean, it's a... It's a so I am going to go okay. back to my mum's, my mum's cooking. And the thing that, I mean, she, she used to make a lot of 70s bistro food because she had this Marks and Spencer's all color cookery book. And so we ate just about everything from there. And the things that she made a lot were, I don't say, how do you say it? Flemish beef, carbonade de boeuf, I don't know. Oh, right. Beef and beer. Okay. <laughs> beef bourguignon. And the thing that I would take would be coquevin because, so it was basically my mom fed us meat in booze 
most days of our lives. So I think we used to, you know, we were Quite a childhood. Drunk. Yeah, I think we were drunk on meat. And was one of the reasons that you were so interested in sweets, were you allowed sweets at home? Yeah. Okay, okay so this wasn't, you weren't doing this sort of covertly? No. No. No, well, the stealing, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm only, I'm only yeah, we confessing go, we to that. We don't condone that, Nikki. <laughs> well, it, well, you might not, but for me, I consider it a sort of early version of Tesco's club card like a loyalty thing because I spent so much money in the sweet shops that I feel like it was only fair for me to have like clawback okay actually so I, lo- I love that just yeah I think they were still I think they were still very highly in profit from my visits it, it, it yeah. sounds it so I wanted to ask you about your maternal grandmother because you talk about her in your latest book and I thought it was such an interesting comparison to think about the way grandmothers cooked mm-hmm. to how we cook today you say she knew all of her recipes by heart, but then the flip side was that her repertoire really wasn't that big, was That's it? That's right. So you know, I think for a lot of my cooking life, I have been in awe of this, you know, this, will we say the presiding spirit of intuitive cooking, which is the Italian nonna in her kitchen in Perugia or in the Travestere or whatever. And she's, you know, she's this amazing person because she can cook everything by heart. She, maybe she doesn't measure things. Well, when I thought about it, actually, my grandmother also cooked like that. But she, you know, you could you could probably say she cooked about 10 things. Mm. You know, and a lot of them were very adapted. So she had a lot of fruit growing in her garden. She had rhubarb and raspberries and blackberries and about six different apple trees and a couple of pear trees uh, and lots and lots of salad and vegetables growing in the in the season. And then, you know, and then she knew how to turn them into pie and into a crumble and into a stew. And so, so the, you know, there were a, a limited number of forms which to apply ingredients to. So, yeah, she could do all of that. And, of course, she had a real a flair for doing it very well because she did it all, you know, she made the same things all the time. Yeah. Her pastry was unbelievably brilliant, but uh, it should be. Yeah. You know, <laughs> doing you know, it, all doing the time. it more than a chef was probably a pastry chef. It? Yeah. So, and I also love how you describe in your words, and I'm going to quote from your book now, you say, over the course of my childhood and adolescence, Indian, Thai and Chinese food were added to the melting pot of British cuisine, or at least British culinary competence on top of the French, Italian and Spanish classics mastered by my mother's generation. And I love that because I think it's so easy to forget how much the culinary landscape has changed and, and is still sort of constantly changing year on year, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So now we have to also, we need to do, have a little bit of Korean yeah. in there. Yes. And vegan, you know, I mean, I, I, that's great. I love it. I love to have a new theme to pursue. It's a great way of learning about ingredients to sort of get into a certain type of cooking. But, you know, it's, it's, it makes the repertoire insanely broad. Yeah. And then that takes us away from understanding what's at the heart of those recipes because we become, you know, we're just running around all over the place. Certainly when I learned to cook, I learned to cook by recipes from books. Brilliant, wonderful, gorgeous cookery books. But I wasn't making any of the connections between those things because I was just too, you know, too blinkered. You know, me, the recipe, the kitchen, not really kind of, looking up, if you like, and seeing where, uh, you know, a, a Turkish dessert that I'm making might actually be very similar to gnocchi alla romana, which mm. might be very similar to making, you know, gnocchi parisienne and then all the, you know, it, so of course, why would you connect them up? Because you're too busy kind of making the food and then eating it. Yes. Yeah. 
that's you know of course and that's the rabbit hole that I went down with Lashbrook Cooking is yeah. to actually say okay what if you what if you did stand back from everything and take international cuisine apart and then put it back together again in a useful way yeah you're so right because it's almost like there's so much choice now not only in terms of what we can eat but what we can cook how do you as a lay person go back to the basics because what are the basics because it's it's too broad Mm. so it's sort of yeah it's so interesting how much it's changed let's pause there and talk about the second desert island dish and that's the first dish that you learned to cook okay so my sister who's two years older than me and when she was 18 she had a white mini uh, (laughs) and we used to carouse around uh, Hampshire together and one day she said oh I've got to take you to this place and get this really fantastic food it's so delicious so she drove me to Southsea which is uh, old Portsmouth like a kind of uh, rather sweet rundown um, seaside town and she went into this place and she came out with two paper wrappers and we drove to the seaside and we unwrapped them uh, and that's where I had my first doner kebab oh. <laughs> uh, and I took one mouthful I think I chewed it about three times and then I vomited into the bin oh near me which is fortunately near me and um and that's where I became vegetarian quite oh, a few years right. because I couldn't bear the idea of eating meat after that uh and the <laughs> first dish I learned to cook was because my mother said I'm not I'm not cooking you loads of veg-. obviously my mother's busy stewing meat in booze yeah and is not having having any of it so I had to cook some of my own food and I learned to cook pea and potato soup Mm. which I think came the recipe came from my mum only had two cookbooks but she also had I think petrol station part work you know if you bought some petrol then you got this uh it's like slither of a cookbook okay like a magazine okay and it came from there and it's you soften an onion and then some diced potato and then you put some either some ham stock or some salted water in and then cook that for about 15 minutes and then put the peas in and cook them for a few more minutes and then blitz it Mm. and I still make it a lot I make it a lot and it's you know particularly if I've cooked a gammon I will always make that soup and I just absolutely love it and it uh, and I ate it a lot because it was the only thing I could make and so how long did you stay vegetarian for about four years I think okay yeah Okay. So I think for yeah, all my teenage years and maybe my early 20s, I crept back to eating meat. Okay. And, and so soup played a prominent role in your early cooking. I read a report that said, in your own words, you had barely be- peeled a potato before your early 20s. Yeah. And I really like that because I think it just goes to show that cooking doesn't have to be something that you've done your whole life to be very good at it. Uh, well, I just, I was not interested. I mean, I, I made the pea and potato soup, but I it was a means to an end. Yes. And I think any time that I did cook up until it, my sort of mid-twenties wasn't, you know, it, I, I mean, I actually really didn't do it very often. I just, my sister, who I lived with quite a few years, she would do, my mum taught her to cook. Oh, right. Because she was interested. I was interested in, my mum taught me how to make clothes. Oh. So I couldn't useful. cook, but I could make a pair of trousers and I could make, uh, could make most things. I could cut a basic pattern myself. I was just, I was really, really into music and makeup and fashion and clothes and not all interested in food. So what do your family, Obviously. yeah, of course, <laughs> what do your family think now that this has turned into your life? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's it, not so surprising because it's been a long time since I became, you know, I did start to become interested in cooking. Around, it was about my mid-20s when I thought, I want to eat the food that my 
mum made. I really miss that kind of food. I think this is a great thing about growing up in a family with a food culture, particularly a food culture that's also a repertoire. I have to remind myself that when I'm cooking for my children in, as they're getting older, to make sure that I make the same things quite It's re- really important that you kind of think, oh, that's something that my mum used to make. So I'm consciously going to, you know, try and find things that they both like that we can, you know, that we can all sit down together regularly so they, you know, they, they remember them as meals that we had. But, you know, we, I, my family are not, you know, they're very ordinary. And, uh, you know, my parents were not like the sort of people that knew who Elizabeth David was. We're just lucky that my mum kind of did like cooking and, and we had a bit of a, a food culture. We really enjoyed eating. And, you know, we would talk about something, you know, if we went out together as a family, we would talk about whether it was good and, or if we found somewhere we liked, you know, it became quite a big deal with us. So we were unusually interested in food considering, you know, our very plain middle, lower middle class status. I love that idea of sort of consciously creating food memories for your children. I think that's really important. Well, I think, you ha- I mean, it's a shame that you have, you sort of have to, but I think if you ate because of the Thai, Chinese, a bit of Korean, a bit of this, a bit of the, the, the breadth of our, you know, our pick and mix culinary culture, I think you probably do have to remind yourself, particularly if, you, if you're cooking like I am, so there's lots and lots of different things going on all the time, to remind yourself to come back to, okay, well, everyone likes, you know, uh, chicken in, uh, chicken risotto and everyone likes this and everyone likes that. These will be the half a dozen things that I will try and make them feel like something that we all liked and enjoyed together. Yeah, that's so nice. Let's talk about how you got into food writing because you say that it was kind of by accident. Back in 2007, you were working in advertising and you were specializing in food and drink brands. So obviously had an interest in food but it was when you did a wine course that your interest in flavor really began. Is that how it went? Yeah, it is. I mean, a, a few things come, that's often a few things came together. But yes, I was very, I was very into cooking. And so, and I could always say like, oh, I just want to do food and drink brands at, at work. And you do what I worked on the strategic side. So you're doing quite a lot of product development uh, with big clients and and that will include, you know, being in, the, in their kitchens and coming up with different flavors for things. But I think the what happened at the um, so this was the Wine and Spirits Education Trust course, and what happened there was it's it's mainly for people who are going into the wine business. So there's a lot of there's a lot of people there who really really want to be there, and you're trying different wines, and it's very much about sharing what you're tasting and what your impressions are, and talking out loud, and it's it's good to give you that kind of confidence, but it also develops the muscle between your you know, your tasting apparatus and your brain where you can actually say, identify things. Mm. I, you know, it's, it's, a, a it's a strange thing to do. If you have, you know, if you sit down with people and you say, let's do a tasting, let's taste this basil, for example, what do you get? And they say, it tastes like basil. And it always, someone <laughs> always says that. <laughs> and it takes, a, you know, obviously it takes a bit of effort and practice to say, okay, what I can taste in this is I can taste grass and I can taste aniseed and I can taste cinnamon and I can taste clove all those kind of things because you're, you know, because you sort of concentrate on it and you practice it. It's not the kind of thing that you do at a dinner party. It's the kind of thing when someone says, oh, I can taste blackberry, you're suddenly then aware that you can also taste blackberry, but it's sort of connecting the dots and realizing that is what you can taste in something that you're not expecting to taste like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's incredibly suggestible, but 
but it's also it's very useful if somebody you know you get somebody on this course who's maybe a, a burgundy expert and they can talk to you about the kind of things that you might get in an aged burgundy and so you can yeah, you can start to identify it yourself I'm all for it I think yeah. it's very fun and and the backdrop to all of this it was sort of Heston Blumenthal was having a moment with his you know unusual flavor combinations and it did it just sort of all come together that you thought oh, this might be a good idea for a book it did in fact it was the day after I'd watched a there's definitely a lot of stuff about the flavor combinations that Heston Blumenthal was experimenting with but then there was I was watching MasterChef and somebody cooked something with I think it was butternut squash and blueberry Oh, and the judges were saying, "Oh, that's amazing! That's wonderful!" And I thought, "Well, how do you, how as do a, you know as a pudding or as a as a, a, sav- a savory okay. course of some sort?" So how, how do you know? And it was the it was the day after that I went off looking for a book. So I went to Daunt in Marlebone and kind of yeah, I had a look around to see whether they had anything, and then scout. I mean, really had a good look in all around to find a book, and then it turned out that really nothing had ever been written like that before. That's so interesting. And so then how long did it take between realizing that no one had done it to thinking, I'm going to do it? Well, I remember thinking when I'd realized that it didn't exist, I thought, oh, I'll write it myself. And then obviously dismissed that because I'd never written anything. I'd, well, I had. I had written one thing, but I'd entered a Waitrose food writing competition. Okay. So I had, there was, there was something in there that you know, wanted to get out. But it was a couple of weeks later and I was sitting in my office and the title, The Flavosaurus, just came into my head from nowhere. And so because that, that came with a, a form, so it would be this, you know, it would have a, the back of it would be like a list and then the front of it would be an elaboration like Roger's Thesaurus. So, yeah. So, so kind of like a light bulb moment yeah, of it all just falling into place. Completely. I mean, it was just very, I mean, I can remember the, the day and the feeling and... Uh, I was sitting at my desk and I remember standing up and feeling quite lightheaded because I just was very excited by the idea. That's so, a bit like, um, doesn't Paul McCartney talk about that with his songwriting? Yeah, me and Paul McCartney <laughs> are really <laughs> very similar level of, uh, of creativity. It's time for the third <laughs> desert island dish. And that's the best dish you've ever eaten. Okay. Well, obviously, if you're a chef or a food writer, you have, you have many of bests and favorites. But I, I do have a best of a best. And I really would love, this is going to sound like Marie Antoinette. Okay. <laughs> I would love everybody in the world to try this once. And that is fresh pasta and truffles. Oh, yes. It's because it's, I, I mean, so I went to Passione in Charlotte Street, which was Gennaro Contaldo's restaurant, I think maybe about 12, 15 years ago or something. And I'd never had truffles before. And I don't really know why order them because I don't like mushrooms. I really, really don't like mushrooms. So, uh, and I knew there was a, some kind of connection, but in fact, it was fine. They weren't, they're not like mushrooms. No. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it really, it is so exquisite. It's so incredibly different to any other food experience where I really felt like it's like a dream to enter, you know, it's just, I mean, the nearest, I think you could probably get to it, certainly on a chemistry level is garlic, mm. but it's like mm. garlic reimagined by you know, a perfumier from grass, something. It's just so incredible. Mm. So absolutely unlike anything else. I mean, the only other experience I think I've ever had was when I went to see Radiohead live. <laughs> and just, I, I feel like I went to see them. And thought, oh, this is, this is, this is like being in another dimension. It's so, so good. 
that I want to fall off my feet, I want to fall off the chair. And so I really think that if you haven't ever had fresh pasta and truffles, or maybe maybe a risotto and truffles, but I would say fresh pasta and truffles, is that every week you put one pound fifty mm. or about that yes. in a in a jar somewhere. And then when the season comes around, around now, you don't spend that money on just just go to a restaurant that's good that you know will have a decent truffle. And spend that money on that, and just and or you don't have to have fancy wine with truffles, just a, 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 a nice ordinary glass of red wine, because it is it is an experience that you have to have to believe it is so exquisite. Yeah. Oh my god, I love the idea of putting money aside every week. Well, it is that. expensive, isn't yeah. it? I mean, it, we're talking about it. sixty pounds for a, a pasta and um, shaved white truffle over the top, and that's a lot of money. But you know, when you look at uh, how much a sandwich and a sandwich. Are, Take a sandwich yep. to work. Yes. <laughs> put the money that you save from not buying it in the silly sandwich shop, put it in a, in a jam jar and go and spend it on the truffles. Do what you can to make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, and it took you three years to write the book, doing it full time. And for anyone listening who may not have been lucky enough to have got their hands on it, it's so much more than just a recipe book. It's literally what it says. It's a thesaurus of flavor. And what to do with different ingredients, recipe ideas, stories, potted histories. I mean, setting out to write a thesaurus of any kind is a big undertaking. Yeah. You probably have to be someone that's never written a book before yeah. to be stupid <laughs> enough to do it. Do you think it's quite lucky that you didn't know everything that was involved in the writing process of it before you started? Could that have sort of put you off? Well, I wrote a sample. So I wrote a proposal and I wrote a sample. So I knew a little bit from writing the sample what I was in for. So, you know, again, I can't say that. Uh, I, did, I, I didn't think I realized how hard it would be. I, I did think I would be getting a lot of material from other food books, which I have many. So I thought, well, yeah. I'll just go through them. I'll see what Nigella says about, um, I don't know, beef and horseradish. And I'll just copy that into my book, you know, and I get good writers talking about flavor combinations. Turns out that there's almost nothing. So it's like, okay, I'm going to have to write this myself. I'm going to have to. So fortunately, the wine course had introduced me to tasting and being able to, you know, I could actually do a bit of that myself and I got better and better at it. But then I had to learn how to read. I mean, there aren't, I don't think there are any books about flavor for written for a general audience of chefs and, and foodies. There are some chemistry books. So I had to teach myself to read chemistry books. Wow. Oh my goodness. But why do you think flavor is referenced so little in that way when really it's the cornerstone of cooking and eating? Mm. It's bizarre, isn't it's it? It's so bizarre. Well, I think there's, I think certainly there is, it's quite, it can be quite difficult to describe. I think there is strangely, I mean, I remember when I was writing it and I would tell some people that I was writing this book about flavor and they would say, how can you do that? Because flavor is subjective. Oh, well, it is a bit. It's not entirely, of course, because, you know, if we, I say, if I describe a clove as being like a sweet, rusty nail, a lot of people <laughs> know what I'm talking about. So it, it, so it isn't that subjective. But when did we not write books about things that were subjective? Well, yeah. Like, oh, no, you can't write about love. Love subjective. Everyone experiences it in a different way. It's like, yeah, well, of course so not. Interesting. But, but I, I do think that there's probably a certainly from our point of view, from a British point of view, like writing about some, the sensual side of something. So you're going to write about how something tastes and then we might get into 
talking about, uh, you know, using metaphors, using similes, then I think there is a certain kind of British history of not wanting to do that, finding it a bit pretentious, mm. finding it a little bit flowery, finding it a bit too sensual for comfort. <laughs> you know, I mean, in the way that, say, my husband's mother, you know, she was brought up not to comment on whether something was nice, you know, on that, whether she enjoyed eating something or not. It was just considered, it was considered off color. And, mm. um, oh my goodness, that's so interesting. Yeah. But so, yeah, I think the time was right to kind of say, okay, come on. And actually, oh, sorry, that was the other thing. When I would talk to people about describing, this was before the book came out, and say, you know, actually, it's really interesting. I find it like a parlor game. Like, yeah. can you describe the flavor of an artichoke? In particular, like I say, a globe artichoke is really interesting to sit there and contemplate what it, you know, that what that wonderful fusion of different molecules. What does it add up to? And a lot of people talked about Jilly Goulden. So she used to be the wine person on Food and Drink program on BBC Two, and and it was quite. I, what I loved about everyone who talked about Jilly Goulden was how much they could remember of what she'd said. So. You know, there were people saying, oh, I remember her saying this was like plimsolls on tarmac and this was like uh, all these different things. And they were sort of a bit, you know, rude, rude, maybe ridiculing it a bit. But also they remembered they remembered it and were quite you know, excited by it. And then actually, if you apply that to food and drink that you do know, when you start thinking about some of the things that she was describing, you try a Riesling, say, for example, then it's, you know, it should be, let's just think, it's fun. Yeah. It doesn't have to be taken too seriously. Mm. As I say, I think of it as a parlor game. Yeah, and people can take food in general a bit too seriously. So Absolutely. It's good to, to bring some fun into it. Let's talk about the fourth desert island dish, and that's your favorite sandwich. Egg mayonnaise. Ooh. I mean, really, it's it. just too, well, also in, this, in its many forms. So there's a piece in Lateral Cooking where I'm writing about mayonnaise. And I write about this egg mayonnaise sandwich that this guy used to make. So my first job in London, I worked in the death tax office in Shepherd's Bush. Okay. Mm. <laughs> Not as much fun as it sounds. <laughs> and, um, and next to the tax office was this really grim precinct. Re- I mean, really kind of sort of Eastern European in its aesthetic. And in there was a cafe and there was a guy and he looked like a greyhound. <laughs> and he used to make these egg sandwiches and he used to make them so slowly. And with just, I think mother's pride, you know, white, plain white bread. And then he'd put a very, very thin amount of uh, Hellman's mayonnaise on them, really thin, thin as you could get. And then he'd slice an egg in one of those egg slices. Oh, yes. And then he'd put these very thin slices of egg on. And then he'd put the other piece of bread completely on top, really exactly <laughs> on top cut it into a triangle and then wrap it in a white paper bag. And for some reason, I mean, he must have put a bit of white pepper on or something. They were exquisite. They were just absolutely delicious. It was possibly hunger is the best sauce and you had to wait so long yeah. for him to make this sandwich. <laughs> that was his tactic. <laughs> so, I mean, that's not, a, that was a great egg sandwich. But then, you know, then there have been egg sandwiches all through my life of different sorts. And then when my twins are in the neonatal unit, at that time, pret used to make an egg sandwich with, Bread with caraway seeds in it. Yes. I'm tempted to call it rye bread, but it's not really rye bread, is it? Caraway seeds and then sliced tomato in it. And that was my perfect egg sandwich. Oh. So, but they don't make that anymore. No, why did they stop? Oh, I don't know. Why did they, they don't make it? Do they make anything fun anymore? Wow. It's just all a bit boring. No. 
So you have to make your own. It's easy enough to make a yeah. <laughs> uh, loaf of bread. But yes, that would be my that That's would be my choice. Excellent choice. I read something that you said that flavor really is to do with what you grow up with. And I thought that was just something that hadn't really occurred to me before. But I think even there have been studies to show that what mothers eat during pregnancy has a bearing on that child. And then, you know, as they grow up through life, their flavor preferences, which is really interesting, isn't it? It is. Yeah, I have read the studies. I don't know an awful lot okay. about them, I have to say. <laughs> um, me neither. Certainly. That's like the um, extent of my knowledge. Yeah. But I do think what you said about, you know, what, what you grow up with, I, I do think that's really interesting. Well, I think that that's what, uh, I think when I went, went into writing The Flavor Thesaurus, I thought it was going to be a lot of, I, I thought I was going to find the scientific answer to why things taste really good together. And very quickly, it became apparent that the answer does not lie in science. The answer really is cultural. Because so what we like is something that we're used to. So there's a great story in the Flavor Thesaurus about the flavor scientist who, growing up in the war, was given orange juice and cod liver oil every day. And so he now craves that. And I don't know if you've ever had that, but that's <laughs> no, not nice. No, that is no. not nice. But, but, you know, you start to, so you like what you're used to. And then, you know, you might, you, as you get older, depending on how much you like food, where you go and who you marry and all that kind of thing, then you'll add other kind of flavors to that, to that repertoire. But often, you know, we try something new and you think, oh, I really like that. It's probably because it's like something else that you already like. Yeah. And so then to turn that on its head, you mentioned earlier that you don't like mushrooms. Mm. Is not liking something to do with not having it enough as a child? Not liking something is usually to do with texture okay. and not flavor. Yeah, that makes sense. But I did put that to the test when I was when I when I came across that as a as an idea because of course a lot of the things that we don't like are celery, rhubarb. You know, you think about the texture mm. of, of, of well, normally the things that people don't like tend to be easily kind of put down to what, what their texture is. But not liking mushrooms, I mean, to the point that I I would consider myself mycophobic. Okay. That sounds a bit, a bit more exciting, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, it I does. don't like I don't like mushrooms. <laughs> uh, I'm mycophobic, I believe. Uh, but I don't like to touch them. I don't like to look at them. I'm oh, right. really not fond of them at all. But I thought, well, maybe it is. Maybe it is about the texture because they do have a particular. I, I do. I am disgusted at the texture. Sorry that I'm making you talk about that. No, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> uh, you know, I think it's really good for me. Aversion therapy. I bought some Puccini stock cubes. And I thought, right, okay, so if I can if I can make this into a stock and I can drink it because yeah, it doesn't it has the texture removed. Oh, I just poured the hot water on and the smell, I thought I'm gonna die. This is so horrible. <laughs> That's really interesting. So unlucky. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. That seems maybe the wrong moment, but the moment we're gonna do it anyway to talk about the fifth desert island dish. And that's the dish that you eat the most often. The thing that I make the most often that I eat most often as well is chana dal. Mm. So, and in fact, there's a the recipe in lateral cooking is my own recipe. That is a, a fusion of other, uh, well, I assume, authentic recipes. But I have been making this. I got made redundant at one point and I didn't have anything to do. And I've worked every day of my life since I was 18 years old. And I didn't really know how to manage my life other than to do something. Yeah. So I decided that I would cook food. Uh, and eat food from one only one country every month. 
wow, that's a cool challenge. <laughs> <That's nuts. laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. That's, of course. Who doesn't do that when yeah. you get neighborhood? <laughs> uh, so the first month I did Spanish and the second month I did Indian food. And so I cooked. Oh, God, it was so great. Really, because it really taught me a lot about the ingredients and mm-hmm. techniques and stuff. But one, of course, you're making a lot of dal in that month. And so I was making this dal and then I kind of perfected it to how, you know, exactly how I like it. And it's, as I say, it's, it's in the book. It's in the book as the kind of, as the sort of starting point. And everyone I make it for, it's one of those things that people always ask for the recipe. And I feel like, well, I mean, it's not wildly, actually, if you look at a whole load of dal recipes, I mean, apart from some of the outliers, like a makani dal, which is very creamy and buttery, but you've got most of the kind of typical dal recipes, they don't vary that much. There's plenty of, I think there's quite a lot of scope for mm. doing interesting oh, dals and interesting tarkas. Mm. You know, Such I, a good cupboard staple too. So, well, that's what made me think of it because when, uh, when I was looking at the question, I thought, well, let's have a look in the cupboard. What have I got loads of? Loads of china. Okay, mm. that's it. Because you're right. It's, oh, I don't have anything in yeah. for lunch today. We always... I always make lunch. Yeah. So, yeah. And you know you can make something completely delicious. Yeah. Let's talk about lateral cooking. Yeah. Tell everyone the sort of elevator pitch for this book. There isn't enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, okay, let me, this is the easiest way for me to talk about it because it is, a, let's say it's a rich book. Yes. It's, there's a lot yes. going on in it. It's meaty. But it's, uh, it's certainly meaty. It's 612 pages, but it's, it started life as a book about how to flavor different things. So different like basic preparations because when I was writing The Flavor of the Saurus, because I didn't have any experience of making up my own recipes or, um, I was, you know, I was a very Stepford cook before that, I had to learn how to kind of adapt things. And then again, I went looking for a book that was all about like, oh, here are some kind of basic elastic recipes that you can apply flavors to. Going back to that thing, like my grandmother, like here are some forms, know some forms and then apply the ingredients that you have or what's good to those forms. Well, I looked for a book like that and it didn't exist. So I started keeping a file of, you know, things like, you know, a Victoria sponge or bread or a risotto, stuff, stuff that I was making. Just how do how can you easily adapt this to different flavors and keeping notes and then actually starting to add to those notes like what if you wanted to make it in a different size what if you want to make what if i'm if i'm being quite outlandish with my testing flavors for bread actually it's probably best to make 125 grams worth of flour you know so just so this file of kind of practical considerations if you're adapting recipe so that's what it was going to be how to flavor everything yeah uh, and that's, you know, and I worked on that for probably about four years. And then I got to the point where I needed to work out how to, what order to put them in okay, and how to do it. And like, obviously I love the flavor wheel. That really, that's my kind of thing. I just yeah. find that sort of thing really interesting. So I thought, well, I wonder if there's a way of organizing this book in an interesting way as well. And because I knew these, all these different starting point recipes so well, it, it became very obvious that they would sit in subject matters. So there's custard, there's nuts, there's roux, there's uh, bread, there's cakes and biscuits, that kind of thing. So that, that was clear. But it soon became obvious to me that you could plot those things on a continuum each. So for example, we have a bread continuum and it starts with a very simple mixture of flour and water to make a flat bread. And then what happens if you, you know, if you add a bit of chemical leavener and maybe use some buttermilk, well, you make this. 
then you can change that for yeast and make a proper loaf. And then actually, if you use milk in that loaf, you can make a bun. And then you then actually, if you enrich it even further, you make a brioche. And then actually, if you enrich it to almost like a batter stage, and you're making a barber or a sovereign. But they all flow into each other, and they all use pretty much the same proportion of flour to liquid. And so seeing that this is very much my thing, seeing patterns, wow, that's really useful. Why didn't I know that? Okay, now that I know that, I don't actually need a recipe to make any of these breads really anymore because all I need to do is sort of learn the little tweaks in methods and stuff because at the heart of it, you're doing pretty much the same thing or, you know, one flows into another really easily. That's what I have. I have a book that's about, you know, a book that's a handbook for people who want to adapt recipes and then kind of do without them because because the way the continuums work, they're there to introduce you to the patterns that I wasn't seeing before and that we don't see because we, we cook too broadly. We put, So they're there to help you actually start to cook without recipes. It's so clever because as you point out, sort of everything is interlinked. Everything's come from something else. And once you start thinking about food in that way, this whole world of cooking just opens up to you. Like nothing's unachievable when you start thinking about it like that. I think it's so clever. Because I think, you know, that that's... So I have been talking to some people who've made their first first bread ever by making flatbread and then said, okay, I completely understand now that I can turn that into something that's sliceable because I'm adding some leavener to it. Of course, that's what it's going to do. It's going to yeah. puff it up and then it's going to turn into something that you can slice or turn into a scone. I mean, it's it, it, you can see why I've struggled with the elevator pitch because it yeah. is, it's, um, it's yeah, that so would have been different. A long elevator yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I think because it's so different, because it's it's coming at the whole world of food from a completely the different end of the telescope saying, okay, well, what if you take everything and, you know, if you take a whole load of different recipes from all over the world and then put them into groups, little families that they, that they belong in, then you can say, well, you know, back to the flatbread, a chapati, a tortilla, a Sri Lankan polroti, they're all made in pretty much the same way with slightly different ingredients and if you can make one you can make all of them yeah and if you can make all of those you can also because we live in this you know if you're into your food that you've got buckwheat you might have some spelt you might have this you might have that open up your cupboard all you need to do is you know take 250 grams of grain add enough water to it until you've got something leave it for a little bit to settle then roll it out and then cook it and see what you make yeah oh, I, I just love how you make it all sound so easy and break it down in sort of such an encouraging and friendly way. It's, it's, it's really great. I'm the new Italian nonna. Yes, yes, yeah. you are. Oh my God, I love that. Since I come from Portsmouth. Yeah, <laughs> no, identical. Well, onto the sixth desert island dish, and that's your go-to dinner party dish. Okay, go-to dinner party dish. Well, my husband does the savoury, okay. always. So if we're having people over, he always claims the main course. Okay. So I would do any appetizers if, if we're having them at all, and I always do the puts. What do you make for pudding? One of two things. In the last, I would say in the last four years, and I have to stop this. Um, <laughs> I make panna cotta Ooh. in many flavors, but usually with kirsch. Mm. So, because I don't have grappa. Yeah. So the nearest thing I have is kirsch. I'm just looking at the way I've got kummel up there. That would be uh, interesting, wouldn't it? But yeah, with kirsch. And I make that because it takes seven minutes. Okay. <laughs> to make. Um, got it down to a fine art. Well, I mean, that's just, you know, five yeah. minutes to soak the gelatin. And while that's doing, then warm up the cream, add the, you know, uh, so, and then find the cups and stuff, seven minutes. 
and then it's in the fridge and takes four hours to set. And my basic recipe is in lateral cooking as the starting point. Okay. So that seven minute recipe is there. I would say it's pretty much perfect. It's got the, if you use the gelatin that I use and the, in the quantity that I use, you get the perfect set. Okay. I'm going to do that. And I, I uh, you know, I've, if I, I don't really tend to order panna cotta no. when I go to a restaurant because I, um, you know, I can make it. Yeah. But I, I think I went out with somebody recently and they had way too much gelatin in it. This is oh. the right amount of gelatin. So I either make that or I make Torta Santiago. Ooh, talk to me about that. That's that Spanish. See, sometimes it's in a pastry case and sometimes it's not, but it's, you'll see it in most Spanish bakeries. It's a, a flat cake that's got the cross of St. James reversed out of it in nice yeah. sugar. So that's just, you whisk some egg you, with some sugar and then you fold some nuts in it. And the Spanish way is to put a bit of citrus zest and some cinnamon or one or the other or both. And then you bake it. Mm, that's it. That's good. So that takes more than seven minutes. That okay. takes more like nine. Oh, oh well. <laughs> then you've got to cook that's it. Still okay. Good. But we're talking. So, <laughs> uh, and so because of my domestic situation, having small children and stuff, that is kind of the other things that I make. And the other thing is, is people like them. Yes. So they're crowd pleasers. They are crowd pleasers. But I have decided, having thought about this, yeah. um, because, and I've been listening to some of your other interviews, yes. and um, what everyone agrees on. Is that uh, if we're having dinner party, having people around to know, we mustn't um, mustn't be stressed out. Yeah, uh, and must do everything. Be really, you know what? We're being too safe. Yeah, okay, I want to. Should we buck this trend? What do you think should yeah. we go back to stress? Five courses. Yeah, we want flustered cooks. Flustered <laughs> cooks, and then when we're on our way home from going to the houses, we've got something to bitch about. Oh, I mean, that's really... true. When, like we didn't even see her; she was just in the kitchen the yeah, whole time. So she rude. didn't take her apron off. Yeah, so she was rude. Covered in flour. And what was she thinking? Those lemon profiteroles <laughs> with that gross. sticky? They were, they were awful. <laughs> but that's why we have to watch Come Dine with Me. That's because true, we don't Nikki. have it from our own friends anymore let's so bring it back i'm gonna start getting ambitious again <laughs> i will come around and bitch about your cooking please do please do <laughs> um we have a cookbook corner on desert island dishes and so i want to know what's your most treasured cookbook well my most treasured cookbook is the marks and spencer's all color cookery book which is 1970 thing okay. in a way that it's the book that my mum cooked all the meat and booze came from that but would I want to take it desert? I'm not really. So well, don't... you don't have to take the book with you. You yeah. sort of leave it behind and just tell everyone how good it is. Yeah, I don't, it doesn't have to be helpful on the island. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think a lot of your chefs would not be. No, I like that. Because if I was to take a book, I would want to take something that's more written. I would want to take an MFK Fisher or maybe How to Eat or something that gave me pleasure on the okay. sentence level. Yeah. The record will state that. But, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and now we're on to the final seventh desert island dish. And it's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Well, something like this. So my husband took me to Lyon for, my, for our 10th wedding anniversary. And we went to the Paul Bacuse market have you ever been there no it's incredible it's amazing. this is really this is yeah this is great joy so i think we got there at sort of 11 ish on a sunday and there's like a lot of french markets there's like a zinc bar where you get lots and lots of different wines by the glass i had really really terrific glass of beaujolais it was so so good i have been trying to buy a beaujolais that's as good as that here and i haven't found anything that's quite the same it have, maybe well maybe it was yeah. just being there and then the market is enormous and there's lots of different restaurants that may be like little versions of bigger restaurants in your famous restaurants in Lyon, but little restaurants and just incredible food stores selling 
just you know beautiful pastries and you know some more kind of the rustic kind of uh, Lyonnaise food and then you know really you know the, the the top of the craft so we went and had we had oysters a glass of probably I don't know probably glass of muscadet but maybe i would have some champagne if it yeah. was special occasion <laughs> so i'd have oysters and then wander around the market a bit more and then have a very small steak with some potato dauphinoise and a nice frisee salad with lots of you know something sharp just quite a small small portion please okay <laughs> um and then what we did on this particular trip is we just bought some crazy pastries but i feel like what i would really like is the last thing before i cast off and the thing that I loved when I was a kid and the thing that I really loved when I was pregnant is I would like three digestive biscuits and a glass of cold milk. <laughs> be... Okay, I think we can stretch to that. <laughs> oh, just that. And a, just three digestives, a cold glass of milk and a book. Just happiness. Yeah, that does sound pretty heavenly. Mm. Thank you so much, Nikki. Those are your Desert Island dishes. Thank you for having me. So many great things in there. I really love the way Nikki talked about her best ever dish and the idea of putting money aside each week in order to eat pasta and truffles is definitely something I'm going to start doing immediately, if not before. Come and find me on Instagram at Margie Nomura, where you'll find me cooking something for a fridge forage or nosing through supermarket trolleys and fridges, just in constant search for inspiration and finding out what people are eating. As always, you can head to the website desertislanddishes.co for lots of recipes. And that's all from me for now. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.